Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, fine, thanks. It's grey today, though. After yesterday's sunny afternoon, sitting in the garden, glass of wine, totally disappointed to wake up to overcast skies. I think we're promised sunshine later. Is this what you call the Edinburgh Har? What is that, anyway? As in, what is the scientific definition? No, just like, what is it? Is it? Why is it just any cloudy day in the summer is called the Har? It's not quite technically true. It's that particular brand, I think, of low cloud that sort of creeps in and is almost foggy like yeah. okay so this isn't a hurry day is it this is just a rubbish day <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it is I, I'm, I'm holding out for sunshine later yeah i think um this doesn't relate to my summers in the states where it's sunny in the morning and then it's sunny in the afternoon and then it's sunny in the evening unless you get a little late afternoon thunderstorm to clear off the kind of heat and a bit of lightning which is always exciting so yeah this doesn't feel like summer to me in a way unless we get a full you know few days of running sunshine all day long so this week we have um, another one of our amazing commission pieces this one from Linda Cracknell called A Confluence of Years and then we're gonna finish up with a poem by Tennyson called Crossing the Bar. Would you mind getting us started, Claire? I've got a piece of cake in front of me, so I'm going to have a bite of that while you get us started. Okay, no problem. As I stand on the quay, I imagine you watching the ships, loading and unloading, a carnival of shouting, horses pulling hoists, men lifting and shoveling, work hurried on by the tide's certain turn, you grew up in this North Devon town in the first two decades of the last century and would have recognised your father's and grandfather's and uncle's ships. Your mother grabbed a hand to keep you out of the way, no doubt. Perhaps you blew kisses to your brother as he cast off into adult life aboard the grand schooner Result. Ships rode up a tidal creek from the estuary a mile away, bringing in lime or coal. Or they took away potatoes, pit props to the mines in South Wales, carrots for the pit ponies. The tide is out this morning, and the few boats moored here these days lean towards an oozy floor. Hulks have been left to rot. Rather than their bows carving through salt waves, they rest on the banks in sprays of Rose Bay willow herb. A small boy stands beside his mother throwing crusts to squabbling mallards. It's just them and me here now. I walk on towards the estuary, following a flood bank. It's a spring morning, and being far from home sharpens my senses, so I raise my face to the sun and drink the bird's song. Walking always pulses up in me a sort of bliss. I'm wishing I'd listened better to you when I was young. You died 36 years ago, so I lost the chance to ask. Middle-aged curiosity has already brought me here several times, and I'd planned a return now to drift again on foot between family gravestones, glimpse the houses of sea captains, aunts, farming cousins, and make sense of the photos I've inherited from you. But it's May 2020 and none of us can leave home. And so I closed my eyes and travelled 500 miles in the space of a few breaths to take, instead, a dream walk. Perhaps when you were 16, 
You'd take this path with school friends, your dark hair swinging round your hips. In a photo I have of you around that age, you're wearing a white, high-necked dress. A cameo hangs from your neck, a white ribbon in your hair. Did you sometimes accidentally run into the sweetheart you told me of? Billy, I think you said. Have I remembered right that he didn't return from the first war? Now the path edges me along a triangle of reclaimed land, known as Horsey Island, transforming to salt marsh after the sea wall was breached by winter storms. There, flashes of ibis and egret wing, pools of reflected blue sky. According to climate change forecasts, should I return in 50 years' time, all of this land will lie underwater. I cross a rise beside a solitary white house and quite suddenly I've reached the estuary. A few boats are pulled high on the bay's shoreline. Tides suck salt water in and out here with a height difference equivalent to a small house. It's just a tight line of gleaming current half a mile away now. Under an enormous sky, the bared seafloor, preserve of shipwrecks and birds, is veined by tiny, watery ravines. Above me, a curlew pipes out its melancholy message. Despite the uneasy feel of the human against the vast, I'm encouraged on by a distant walker, moving wispy pale under the bank of dune and bramble. I follow, skirting the bay towards Crow Point, the gravel peninsula pointing into the estuary, where I know a Trinity House light is hoisted on a steel frame to fend off stray vessels. A breeze catches my hair, salt and blown sand dashes my face, and finally I hear the roar of the Biddeford Bar, the ferocious gateway at the estuary mouth, where waves catch on gravel banks and many ships have foundered. Shall we stop there for a minute? Yeah. She has an incredible way with words to sort of suck you into a place and a time, doesn't she? Yeah, and that that idea that she's not actually there makes it all the more incredible, I think, the writing. Because I I forgot that at one point when she describes the wind lifting her hair, I had to kind of check myself that she was actually dreamwalking because I thought, oh, yeah, that that makes sense. And then I thought, no, 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 wait a minute. (laughs) It's one thing to describe something that you're seeing on a walk in your mind's eye, but another thing to describe the effect of the weather on you, as it were. The blown sand dashing her face made me think about what that feels like, because most people will have felt the feel of wind-blown sand on their skin, and it's not very pleasant, and it took me right back, and, and you're right, it made me stop for a moment and think, gosh, she's not actually there. I'm sort of wondering why she's written it that way. You know, if you wanted to write a piece about going back to a place, well, maybe we'll find out by the end, but one of the questions I have is, why has she told us that she's not there? Why didn't she just write as if she's there? What's the benefit for us as a reader or a listener to knowing that she's just imagining it? Is it because it gives us permission to, to take similar walks? or I wonder if it's her sharing her disappointment and not actually being able to do what she planned. It sounds like that it was a long-held plan and something that had taken some organising and she's meant to be there walking those walks. Maybe she's telling us to sort of share her disappointment in not being able to do that. Yeah, and I suppose it's, a, it's very much a piece of its time, isn't it, around this time when we're not allowed to go very far because we know that it's 500 miles from wherever she is when writing. 
It does contrast the inability to move and walk and be in a place and travel with the text of the actual piece, which is about doing just those things, isn't it? And the whole thing about the ships and everything is all about travel. So it does kind of help us make that contrast. But for me, it feels like on one level, she's taking this journey both, you know, she's taking the journey to the place that she planned to go in her mind's eye. And there's a part of that journey that she was planning. She's also making a second journey, which is back in time to try and imagine what things would have been like for her family, for the you in the story. So that's a sort of double journey that she's allowing herself to have in her mind's eye, which sort of gives me permission to think what kind of journeys would I like to take. I don't know about you, but I had to go at trying to imagine a journey in my mind's eye when I first read this. And it's really difficult to get the level of detail. Even when I was thinking about places I've been to on numerous occasions, that idea of describing in such precise detail that we get a real sense of the place is quite a difficult thing to do, or I found it a difficult thing to do. And again, that's a double translation. That's her being able to remember and experience those things and then translating that to pull us in enough for us to to feel it as well. So quite often you can remember something, but articulating that to someone else so that they feel like they were there is a sort of second step, as it were, or a difficult step, particularly for me anyway. My initial response to this piece was uh, not of bitterness or anger or anything, but kind of feeling that she's privileged to have that memory. Certainly privileged to be in a position where she can go back to the place where her family set off on boats in the first couple of decades of the last century. And again, I think this is a theme that we keep coming up against in the podcast with me, which is I don't have that capacity to go back. Certainly on the Iranian side too, I don't have the capacity to go back. And in fact, I don't even know where they are because I think that the very nature of kind of migration means you don't know those places, you don't have those memories in those places. So my initial response was one of trying to place the writer in her own family history and feeling that she's privileged. And not necessarily privileged in the bad way or the way that we use that, that word to kind of you know, put other people down, but that she has this gift of knowing where to go in a way that I just would never, I don't know, but maybe that's just, again, me kind of idealizing, which I tend to do, the lives of others, because I don't know if you would have that. No, I mean, I felt from it, it was very much a homage to her grandmother and that there was a sadness there in that she'd lost her grandmother 36 years ago. And I don't know how old Linda is, but certainly that's a significant period of time ago to have lost her grandmother and to have lived without her grandmother who she was obviously fond of so for me there was a sadness a sort of bittersweetness about the piece and that her wish to have that lost time and that ability to ask the questions rather than having to conjure up the family history herself she obviously has enough of an anchor into that life to be able to go and do that. I mean, could you do that with your granny who you talk about quite a lot? Yeah. That, would that have been in Glasgow? Would that have been in... where was The borders. Else? Yeah, because I've been to near the farm. That farm is still in the family and my dad's cousin's are there but my my dad spent a lot every summer there as a child even though he was living in Glasgow and then we would holiday there as children because my dad and his cousin were very close so there's still things in the family for example her griddle pan where she made pancakes 
for me, is the griddle pan that her mother made pancakes on the fire rather than on the stovetop. I have the recipe for the pancakes that she would make. So yeah, I, there's lots of things that I would relate back to her, though even though I never actually saw the place where she grew up or was in the same room that she was in as a child or any of that, I, I have enough relative experience to be able to put myself, I think, in where I think she would have been. And I think that's the gift, you know, for me as someone who doesn't have those things, that you are able to trace that right back. And it goes back to that sense of home and belonging and things, even if you're not in that place, being able to identify it and talk about a griddle pan is remarkable. But And it may only be remarkable because I don't have it. Because if I think about my mum's family, for example, you know, my grandpa came from real poverty, I would say, because his father died when he was young. So he had to go out to work at a very early age to help support the rest of the family. And I'd absolutely never seen where he came from because he moved on very quickly. And then the Iranian family is even more kind of unknown. My dad grew up on a farm. I'd love, I'd still love for him to take me back and show me. But of course, the political situation doesn't allow that. He talks about it a lot. And I right now, he never did when I was growing up. And I write about it, but it's it's very much this dream walk, you know, that Linda's got in the sense that I, but I'm making it up based on his trying to, exp- I suppose he's taking a dream walk and I'm writing it down. But you have strong connections to a few precious things that are related to that time that have wonderful stories around them. I mean, I love your precious gold bangle yeah, that you wear true. and the cookbook that you used yeah. that was, was it written by a family friend? Am I right? Yeah, it is, um, it is, yeah. They're not things that you necessarily know about but there, for me, that that's the connection I have to the griddle pan. Yeah, I suppose that's right. No, there are things that were passed down on both sides of the family, really. That you know, pair of candlesticks, great great aunt Elsie's silver, who was a spinster, which is funny. You know, the idea that and, was, and that was her great treasure. Yeah, and I use it at Thanksgiving and things just because I know that it mattered to. Her. I mean, I never knew her. I have this idea in my head of this feisty woman because she was single and she was going to have silver anyway. And I like that idea that it, you know back then whenever that was a single woman would have had silver there you're right there are things it doesn't translate to a space and i wonder if that's a real story of migration is that you lose that sense of place in your dna shall we read on and see what happens at 16 you'd already lost your father and your uncle to the sea and must have lived amongst legions of women wearing black you had an education under your belt Black and white keys danced under your supple hands. They were gnarled with arthritis by the time they held mine. Sorrows, too, had furrowed the sweet face in that photograph. Who could have foreseen the sudden death of your husband in his thirties, on the eve of a second war you had to live through? Two rivers, Taw and Torridge, meet just beyond Crow Point, mingling waters that arrive each by their own route and pace, with their particular tang of high moor or valley, granite or sandstone. After the confluence, the waters journey the last mile together over the bar to the open sea. I'm nearing Crow Point. In the strange way in which time can fold on a dream walk, the steel-held light is absent from the point. But towards the bar, the red-striped tower of the older, long-gone lighthouse dominates the shore. A small figure stands beside it, looking out towards the horizon, surf rising from the bar beyond, nothing else of the human world. The small figure wears a white dress. With your back to the small town, did you breathe more freely here, and alone, 
glimpse a sea road to elsewhere. You left as a young woman, but then spoke of this place endlessly when you were older. And I wonder if you passed on your longing, the wanderlust, to me. My heart picks up pace with my feet. I find myself running towards your solitary back. The dark hair that streams behind you is just as you always told me, long enough to sit on. I am 44 years older than you and surely cannot call out, Granny, so Dorothy, I shout, laughing now, Dot. You look back, revealing a pale face, dark brows, strong jaw. Of course, you cannot know me. Yet I think I see a puzzled recognition growing as I approach. I shout again, my feet sluggish on slipping sands. You turn fully towards me and a young, soft hand rises in a wave. I'm coming, I shout, I'm coming. I distinguish your eyes now, darker than when I knew their sea-clouded version. The lighthouse looms above us, your hair lifts in the wind. Panting, I slow to a walk to catch my breath. I have so very many questions to ask you. Ooh, she gets to speak to her. Or do we think she's going to speak to her? Yeah, I want to think she does. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny to me because sort of the dream walk would be, for me, is so much more about the connection with people. So it's nice to have a story where you, it's that lead up to it, you know. Yeah, I think it would be satisfying, is that the right word? If she hadn't got to meet her back there. But I didn't see it coming, did you? I wished for it, but I wasn't sure I was going to get it. I am a sucker for a happy ending, though. What if it's not happy? What if Dot tells her? Well, the joy is we we don't know, and so I get to decide. You get your happy ending in this one. I have them going off to sit on a sandbank and talk for hours, and she gets all the questions answered that she wants answered. Do you have this thing in, in, in Iran, in some families, there is this feeling, or at least I've been told this by some members, members of my family that the dead come to you in dreams oh yeah no I definitely have people I've lost come to me in dreams not necessarily having a conversation or an exchange of advice but definitely they sort of appear in scenarios my granny's a regular visitor the one that I admire yeah 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 (laughs) my daughter's very like her personality wise there's a little bit of granny that definitely lives on in Morven yeah but I wonder about that because it doesn't necessarily that's not the granny that appears in this story is it it's the young woman and maybe Linda knows this place well, not necessarily because she's been there so many times, but also because it's grown up in her mind because her granny's talked about it so much. You know, I assumed in the first half of the story that she knew the place really well because she's been there so many times herself. But in some ways, things grow in our own mind's eye when someone tells you the same stories over and over again. So it could be that her dream walk is just using the language of her grandmother, you know, that her grandmother used to describe it herself. I don't know. The detail, though, is so specific. I feel like she's been there, but maybe that's just her skill as a writer. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, Linda's an amazing writer. You know, my sense is that she's certainly capable of it. And what's lovely is that we don't know, you know, that we feel that she has been, she has to have been there. I wouldn't put it past her to not have spent a lot of time there and just imagined what it would be like. And also she tells us so much about this young woman, you know, by 16, she's lost her father and her uncle. 
mean, we know that the writer had a relationship with her grandmother in a way that allowed, we don't know whether it was good or bad, but we certainly know it was good enough for her to still be thinking about her and dreaming of her 36 years later, but and also good enough for her grandmother to have passed on the stories. So there was a, a, a working relationship there. What we don't really hear about is anything about her as an older woman. You know, she's dreaming about what she was like as a young person, but all we know is that she has sea-clouded version of her eyes, which I took to be kind of cataracts. or And that she left the place where she grew up, but always talked about it. What I find interesting is that she says, I wonder if I got my wanderlust from you. But that doesn't feel like wanderlust to me. You know, hankering for a place that was home doesn't feel like wanderlust to me. But I wonder if she's hankering from home because she's never there again, because she's because she's going to other places. Okay. And she's constantly going to visit other places, but thinking about home. Because what's described in, in my head is a kind of constant wishing of having that going back. And I wonder if that's something that's passed on, you know, if I will instill in my children a real sense of wanting to be here, because I had the opposite of kind of wanting to be away, you know, and wanting to travel the world. And when given the option between living in New York and living in London, I chose London. I perceived it as a gateway to the rest of Europe and further afield, not because I necessarily, I mean, London's a lovely place, but I didn't necessarily want to be want London. I wanted the rest of the world. And I had this sense that if I stayed in New York, I would only ever go west, you know, within the US. But I wonder if my experience of that will make my children stay home, if that makes sense. It's interesting, definitely during the virus and the kind of lockdown and everything, I've had lots of conversations with American friends who've chosen to make their lives here. Without exception, everyone is questioning that decision now. Um, particularly now, I think partly because it's so con- those, those decisions were, were not necessarily made, but just kind of lived into. Probably a bit like me, people went places, liked them, kept going, liked them weren't really actively making a decision to be away from home forever. You just kind of live along into the answer, I think, as um, Adrian Rich once said, kind of find yourself there. But then when the option to go back is take is really taken away, not hemmed in by children or a job or anything, but the idea that you can't, you might not be able to go back because you just literally aren't allowed to fly. So many people in my position, my pals are thinking, hang on a minute. If this is the new reality, is this a moment where I have to actually choose? Yeah, I do wonder whether we pass that kind of wanderlust or that hankering for a home on. I don't know, but it sounds like Linda's view is it's the wanderlust that's come through rather than that desperation to go back to the place you're from. But we don't know anything about the writer, so she may live in the place she was born and be using this as a kind of way out. Who knows? I really enjoyed the story today, though. I really enjoyed that descriptive writing that just takes you to a place you you haven't been to before. And it gives you that gift of um, not only taking you out of whatever room you're sitting in and putting us on, you know, on the bar, as it were, but also then asking the question for me of, okay, which journeys could I take without having, you know, of my own family, um, which is a lovely kind of prompt, as it were, to go back and think through things. So yeah, that's been a real gift, I think. And I'm hoping that she'll get the chance once lockdown's over to make that journey as well that she obviously was planning to do. We'd love to hear about it if she does. Linda, if you're listening, we want to know. Shall we swap over to the poem? Crossing the Bar, Alfred Lord Tennyson. Sunset, an evening star, and one clear call for me. And may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. But such a tide as moving seems asleep too full for sound and foam, when that which drew from out the boundless deep turns again home. Twilight and evening bell, and after that the dark, and may there be no sadness of farewell, 
when I embark. For though from out our born of time and place, the flood may bear me far, I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. Well, this is a different bar, isn't it? Yeah. Well, is it? I think he's talking about death. Yeah, I think he is as well. Um, So, you know, that kind of real risk taking is what I thought he was talking about. You know, that call to the sea and then the kind of worry for those left behind. And this is one of the poems that Linda chose to link with her story. And I hadn't actually thought that there was a lot of death and risk and whatever in her story, which obviously there is, but that hadn't stood out for me until I read the poem. And then I really, the the poem made me then go back and really focus on the similarities between the risk in crossing the bar here and the going out to sea and what's described in the story. And of course, in the story, she loses her father and her uncle, or their their granny does, to the sea, so that she would have known, in a a way that's very much described in this poem, in this poem, yeah, that those same risks were inherent then. But it makes me think as well about the people left behind. You know, I mean, there's there's obviously risks in, in putting out to sea described in this poem, but they don't feel like risks that the poet is feeling. He doesn't seem scared of those risks. He's happy to embark. He wants to put out to sea and assumes he'll turn again home. But it's the people left behind in, the, in waiting for the fishing boats and the schooners to come back that are the real ones carrying the risk, I think, or, or feeling the risk. I think, you know, I, I don't know about you, but as a kid, you know, or as a young person with kind of new relationships and then you'd be separated for a while. I remember it was always the worst one to be left behind. You know, if someone was going off for a few weeks or something, the person left behind always felt it much more because they were carrying on with their day to day with the absence of someone there. Whereas if you were the one going off on a work trip or whatever it was, you were off seeing new things. So you were forever being distracted about being away from whoever it was or do you know what I mean I always think it's the people the people left behind that really notice absence in a way that when you're off visiting a new place you're just seeing something new different every and different every day so I think that's true of the the seafarers and also my head tells me that if you're that kind of person who wants to get on a boat you're the kind of person who needs to go out and see the world you know who has that feeling of adventure and wanting to be out there so there is you know even if you're sad about leaving people behind, the instinct to leave is stronger than that to stay, which can't be true for the people standing on the shore. And there is that line about turning again home. So I think there is that kind of recognition that at some point it must always be nice to come back. But then as we get towards the end of the poem, you know, the word pilot in the second, the penultimate line is capitalized. That's got to be his maker, right? So, you know, that idea that the flood may bear me far isn't just about space anymore it's not just about where on the globe you are it becomes something else it becomes more about it's a kind of spiritual question isn't it yeah and it reflects the sort of double journey that we have in this story yeah well for me it suddenly becomes about how far away from the yeah as you say that sort of perception of home or where you belong you've gone from and then coming back to it you know coming back to that pilot that maker that sense of where you where you started or where you belong in some way without getting too religious about it. But there's a, there's a real acceptance of death and leaving those you love in this poem that I find quite a comforting, I guess. You know, there's, I hope to see my pilot face to face. You know, there's no sense of regret or anxiety about what you're leaving behind. It's, it's just another step on the adventure that you're having, or it feels that way to me. 
Yeah, that's true. It, it feels it, it comes as easily as setting out. In Linda's story, we skip over that anxious bit where the granny's no longer here. You know, she does feel sorry that she hasn't been able to ask her more. I mean, and that's always the regret of people, right, with the elderly, because by the time you're old enough to realize you want to ask questions quite often, they're not around anymore. Or at least when you're old enough to articulate what the questions are, you know. You might ask your grandparents for stories, but you, you know, um, don't know which stories it is you wouldn't really need to know as a person until you're, you've had a bit, have a bit more lived experience. But we do skip over that anxiety of death. And in fact, she seems to, you know, she's, she's at the point of asking questions again isn't she at the end of that piece so and in the way that the poem does it skips over that part really between the inventor and what beyond what goes on beyond and it's funny because you wouldn't necessarily think a Tennyson poem would connect with this very what I think is very modern story but that's the great thing about classic literature when I saw Linda's list of poems that she thought would read well with with her story I was thinking oh I, yeah I didn't know this poem before but I saw but I obviously knew the the poet's and so I was interested to, to look it up straight away and find out um, what she'd picked and think about why. It's that whole thing of, you know, the poems that we're still reading from many years ago. We're reading for a reason because they're saying something so universal that they still hold true. Yeah, I feel like um, Professor Philip Davis saying that because he's saying that all the time at the reader, isn't he? That, uh, you know, there's a reason classic literature is still around because it still speaks to us on many levels. So that's really true of this poem. But it's lovely to actually see it actively connected to something that was written that we commissioned, which is, which is lovely. I'm sure we'll be reading this story for, for years to come in our groups as well. I think that's just about all from us today. Just one thing for me to add while we've been recording this today. The sun has, in fact, come out. It has. Scottish summer. So there you go. <laughs> Best to get those bedroom curtains shut. <laughs> I can take off my woolly jumper that I'm sitting in and pretend now it's summer. Maybe I should just decide that it's sort of winter in the morning and rather than yeah, two places in my house, I can have two seasons in a day, winter in the morning, summer in the afternoon. So I think next time we, we come together, we've got another wonderfully drawn piece of writing um, from our commissioned works. I'm really looking forward to looking at that and talking about that next time. And uh, thank you again for having us in your ears today. And we hope to be back with you again soon. 